0: Can the God of the Bible really be trusted? Can God be taken at his word? Some of you may say emphatically, yes, of course. I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't believe in God if he couldn't be trusted. But how are you so sure? How are you so confident that God can be trusted? How is it that you know Him to be worthy of such trust? What makes you, as a Christian, so confident that you can take God at His word? Have you ever thought of that question? Perhaps you just easily believe, of course, it's God. I- He's God, right? I'm supposed to trust Him. But if we were to peel back that question and think about what is it, why is it that God is so trustworthy? What has He done that's demonstrated His his worthiness for you and I to depend on Him for our eternal souls? Well, we want to think about that particular question this morning. As God reveals himself in his word that he is a God who can be trusted. Because when he makes promises, he is not like us. He keeps every promise he makes. There's not a promise that God has made that he has not kept. Therefore, he is worthy of of our trust. Well, we've been studying the book of Genesis over the last uh, several months, and uh, I hope you've been encouraged in your time in God's Word as perhaps you've rethought about these stories in the way uh, they tell a larger story about what God is doing in your life and in this world. Last week, we concluded by seeing a really quite dark picture in the life of Jacob. Perhaps there's no darker day in the life of Jacob than Genesis chapter 34. And one of the things you want to, I think, as a Christian be encouraged by, is that the Bible does not whitewash sin. The Bible contains some of the most provocative and downright dark sin. That one could even imagine. Genesis chapter 34 is an example of such things. And it's not just the world who's acting sinfully. No, in Genesis chapter 34, it's God's covenant people who are acting like fools. Or as we'll see later in the story of Joseph and Judah. Judah's deep depravity. But yet, Judah will be the one that God will work his redemption through. Not righteous Joseph. It's interesting to see how God works through sinful people. And the book of Genesis is filled with some of the most sinful human beings in all of the world. Yet God's promise to save continues. From the rape of to deceit, to murder, to the passivity of of Jacob. He just sort of has his, his hands tied behind his back. He doesn't do anything to save his own daughter, his own flesh and blood. Doesn't stop his sons from slaughtering an entire village. And all he cares about is staying safe. Perhaps that's you this morning. As long as you are comfortable Everything's okay. Well, as we think about the life of Jacob and the larger story that God is telling through the book of Genesis, and frankly, through the Pentateuch, the, the, the first five books, Genesis isn't just an isolated book you pull off the shelf. It's actually a part of a larger collection of, of five books that Moses, the leader of Israel, is writing as they're leaving their captivity in. Egypt, they had been enslaved for 400 years, and, and this mass of a, thousand, or a million people rather, are leaving Egypt and going on a trek that will take them 40 years to get to the Promised Land. And Moses is writing and retelling the history of Israel, not just to sort of give them an, a log of what happened in the past, but to tell a, a greater and bigger story about what God is going to do through this particular people. And that God was not merely saving a people, but he was saving humanity through this people. And if you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God promised that it would be through a particular person, a child that would be born, that would come and crush the head of the serpent who had led Eve to sin and Adam to fall. And so, as you think about the book of Genesis like a giant funnel, God started this, uh, Moses started the story with all of humanity. And, and through each chapter, the funnel has gotten narrower and narrower and narrower. As, as you read the story, as you see the characters, as you're confronted with these real people, the question is is this the promised seed? Is this the one who's going to come and deliver God's people from sin? And we saw it narrow to to Abraham and 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 then from Abraham to his son, Isaac, Isaac over Ishmael, the younger over the older. And then we saw it narrow from Isaac's twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Or Jacob. Is going to be the one. And as the story of Genesis unfolds, it, it narrows down of the 12 sons of Jacob, which will be the one who is, del- is the deliverer? Well, it's not Reuben. We'll see that today. It's definitely not Simeon or Levi. They're, they're, they've got blood on their hands, literally. And as the story unfolds, you might think, well, it's got to be Joseph, right? The, from chapter 37 to chapter 50, the whole narrative is about Joseph. But it's really not about Joseph. It's really about God and about Judah. And in the midst of the Joseph narrative, there's this invasion in chapter 38 of this wicked, sinful man named Judah. And through this tribe, the lion of the tribe of Judah would come, the king would come, the savior of the world. Well, with that in your mind, as a sort of contextual understanding of what's happening. When I read chapter 35, or chapter 35 here of Genesis, uh, it might seem that this is just sort of a collection of various facts. And it might feel as if this is just sort of disjointed, but, but really it's about transitioning to the Joseph narrative. Anticipation of what God is about to do. An explosion, if you will, of God's purposes will be made evidently clear as the story unfolds. Well, if you've not turned, please get there. Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away your, the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a tear from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called the name Alan Bacuth. God appeared again to Jacob when he came from Paran Haram blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were some distance from Ethra, Rachel went into labor and She had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as soon as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephra, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent toward the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Beliah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Beliah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpha, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob that were born to him at Haram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kiriath-Ebra, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had journeyed, sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his son Esau and Jacob. Buried him. Well, friends as we consider chapters 35 and 36. And I'm not going to read chapter 36. We'll consider it in a moment. We could summarize this particular section of Genesis in this way. The Lord. Is a promise keeping God. El I? Keeps his word. He made promises to Abraham. He had made promises even before Abraham. He had promised Abraham to make him into a great nation. Abraham had no children at the time. But then he had a son. And that son couldn't have children either. But then he had twins. God is slowly fulfilling his word. He promised them to make him a great nation, to make them a great people, and to, and to give them land. God wasn't merely creating some sort of new nation, some sort of some nation state to, like he would others like America or Canada. No, God was establishing his kingdom on earth. And this nation that God was was forming would be the place where he would dwell and make his glory known, not just to one particular nationality, the the Hebrews, but through this one nation, all the world would be blessed. Through the descendants of Abraham, God promised to bless the world. And we know that has been fulfilled partially in, in the coming of Christ and will be completely fulfilled at the return of Christ. God's promise are fulfilled. And so the, the real point I want us to see here this morning are the promises that, that sort of run throughout the book of Genesis and see their fulfillment partially, sort of an already but not yet, and see how they all point us to Christ. Chapter 35 is the nation of Israel. Israel. God's promised people. In chapter 36, we see God's, or the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau, and God's promise to the nations. You see, God isn't merely working through one particular people group, but His plan is a global plan where one day, we who believe in Christ will stand before God's throne and worship Him. But it won't just be a bunch of Americans or a bunch of Europeans or a, or a bunch of uh, Asians or a bunch of Africans. Or it won't be that. God's Word says that it will be every tribe, every tongue, and every nation that has ever existed will stand and worship the lamb. And we see the breadcrumbs of that promise in this chapter of 35 and 36. So let's look at a number of things this morning. First, chapter 35, and the birth of a nation. We're told that God commands Jacob to go to Bethel. Now, Bethel was the place that, that God had met with him before fleeing. So, so think back 20 years earlier. Jacob is fleeing from his brother. His, he's just stolen everything from his brother. He, he's taken his brother's birthright. And he's taken his, his brother's inheritance. Right? Esau is furious. And as soon as his father dies. He's going to slaughter him. So, so you've got to have that in your mind. As you think about this particular text. Right, So Esau is going to murder Jacob if he gets his hands on him. Jacob flees his, his mommy. You know He was a mama's boy. And, and his mom sent, it, sent him back to her homeland so that he could find a wife. And he lived there for 20 years. And before he leaves the promised land, an angels, angels plural, descend from heaven. And God reveals himself there. And he calls the place Bethel, which means house of God. And now it's been 20 years, and he's back at the Promised Land. And we we considered last week that Jacob's lingering. See, he was supposed to go back to Bethel. But instead, he, he meandered around, he wandered around, and because of that, because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, his daughter is assaulted, and his sons commit genocide. And as we helpfully heard earlier from Brother Scott, that in order... For his family to get right, he's got to get right with the Lord. We see that that Jacob is struggling in his faith. There's there's moments in his life where he looks like the most faithful dude in the world. And then there's moments where he seems to be the most foolish man in all the world. Well, chapter 35 happens to be one of those good days in the life of Jacob. And so we're told that Jacob is commanded by God, get your butt back to Bethel where you belong. And Jacob realizes that if I'm going to go meet with God, I've got to get ready. You could see this sort of repeated theme throughout all of the scripture. No one goes before God before they get themselves right. We'll think about that in the context of a Christian context. Particularly the word repentance. What we see Jacob do there in verse 2 is that he commands his his family to put away foreign gods. This sort of reveals the problem, doesn't it? It would have not been strange or abnormal for these folks to have picked up gods along the way. Of course, they would have believed that these particular gods would have led to perhaps fertility. We see Leah using fertility drugs Um, back in uh, their time in Mesopotamia in order to try to get pregnant, uh, the manrakes, which was some sort of, uh, we're not really sure the specifics of it, but it was some sort of uh, fertility-inducing drug. And so we see that idolatrous worship. We we know that uh, Rachel has stolen her dad's gods and sat on them uh, when they fled from Laban. This family has been worshiping themselves and worshiping other gods and not the one and true living God. And so Jacob tells them, listen, we got to get things cleaned up and we've got to go. We need to change our clothes. Um, Simeon and Levi needed to change, of course. They were covered in blood. They had just completely slaughtered an entire village. But they must go and meet the one true and living God. And what I want you to think about is is putting this first in the context of the bigger story of Genesis. In other words, who's reading this story? None other than the Israelites who are doing what? They are leaving Egypt to go worship the one true and living God. Remember what Moses did when he pleaded with Pharaoh? He said, Pharaoh, I want you to let these people go so that they can go and worship. Before they could go and worship, they had to get themselves right with the God they were going to worship. More than that, this this same nation is going to go into the wilderness, surrounded by mighty nations. They're not just going out into the... When you hear desert, you, you think, oh, it's like isolation. There's nobody around. Yes, it was arid land, but there were mighty nations like the nation of Edom, like the nation of the Midianites, like the nations of the Hivites that were surrounding them. And how do you think they would have heard that as Jacob and his family put away their foreign gods, get their hearts right before God, that fear and terror fell upon the nations around them? Now remember, look at chapter 34. Remember Jacob's response to Simeon and Levi. Verse 30. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They had just slaughtered an entire town. Uh, They weren't everybody's friends. They had overnight become the enemy of the land. Everybody wanted to kill them. But notice what God does there in verse 5. God protects them. God keeps them safe. As the nation of Israel reads this, as they hear God protected our father, Jacob, he will protect us. Moses is teaching God's people that he is with him wherever they go. I feel like I'm preaching the same sermon every single week because it's really uh, all of these chapters are are saying the exact same thing. This is what uh, Jacob himself confesses in verse 3. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. That's the point of the passage right there. That's the point. That's the, that, that is the point of the book of Genesis, that God will be with his covenant people wherever they go. So imagine for a moment, you're, you're an Israelite. You're fleeing from Pharaoh, a mighty nation. You are isolated. You, you are out in the wilderness, nations breathing down your neck. You have no military power. You, you've been a slave for 400 years and you hear the story about your forefather Jacob, the one who got you down to Egypt to begin with, and you hear that God was with him, this God that you're going out to the wilderness to worship, is a God who will be with you wherever you go. This is why God reveals himself to Jacob and tells him that I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. There is only one other mention in all of the Bible of El Shaddai. And that is when Abraham. And so Jacob is hearing that that the God who protected his grandfather is the God who is going to keep him secure as well. Brothers and sisters, this God is the God that we worship through Christ. A God who is with us wherever we go. Friends, you hear the words of Christ. Jesus is, is going to be leaving the earth. He's about to ascend to heaven. And, and, and he told his disciples that they are going to become exiles. Exiles. They're going to have this heavenly home, but they're going to be living here on earth and they're, they're part of another kingdom. And Jesus utters the words to them Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. It is the same words that Jacob utters here that my God is a God who is with me wherever we go. Brothers and sisters, God is with us wherever we go. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God's presence is among us. If we're in the deepest, darkest place, or on the highest mountain in our souls, God is with us. Even in the gathering of God's people, Jesus promises that when we gather as a congregation and the, we have the keys and exercise the keys... In other words, we have the the authority because where two or more are gathered in His name. That's not for prayer service. That's for church discipline service. Uh, When we we gather in the name of Jesus, like we do every Lord's Day, Jesus says, I'm with you wherever you go. God is a promise-keeping God. He keeps His promise, His word, and he confirms in this chapter that he will be with Jacob and his descendants; that he will not abandon them; that he will not leave them. God confirms the Abrahamic covenant upon Jacob and sort of passes the baton. Uh, we, you heard the death of Isaac there at the end. Isaac was was a was not the greatest uh, faith, most faithful dude. Uh, in fact, as you think about Genesis, uh, Isaac. Isn't, doesn't really have a prominent place in the book. There's a lot about Abraham and a ton about Jacob and, of course, a lot about Joseph, but not a whole lot about Isaac. But notice how God is faithful even when Isaac is faithless. He lived to be 180 years full of days. In other words, God tremendously blessed him. Again, these are just uh, small portions. I just wanted to point out to you about this sort of theme that God is with his people. He is covenant people he will not abandon, and he will be with them. Well, as Jacob travels on from Bethel and settles in Hebron, uh, sort of taking over the mantle of his father, a number of things happen. I want to point them out as we uh, transition to chapter 36 and delay and sort of the, the foundation. The covenant that God made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, is now in full force with Jacob and his family. These 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. This will become the nation of Israel. No, it won't happen now. It will be some 500 years from the the moments, the, the events that are taking place here in chapter 35 before they become a nation and establish themselves as God's covenant people through the leadership of ultimately Joshua as he brings them into the promised land. We're told that as Jacob makes his way back to his father to settle, that his beloved wife, his favorite wife, if you're visiting with us this morning or uh, or you're just woken up to Genesis, welcome. Jacob has four wives. Um, don't commend it, uh, it's not biblical. And uh, if you want to know why uh, polygamy is a disaster, just read the book of Genesis and you'll figure that out real quick. Uh, of course, polygamy, uh, multiple wives, is forbidden in the scriptures. Um, But that didn't stop uh, some people, like Jacob, uh, from uh, consuming as many as he could. Or Solomon after him, uh, as Solomon had more than anyone. Um, But we're told here that Rachel, his favorite wife, dies in giving birth and delivery of Benjamin as you think and contemplate this particular verse, I hope that you saw some little breadcrumbs there, didn't you? Rachel, Jeremiah will use this particular text as a lamentation as they lament their exile in Babylon and lament the death of Rachel's sons. We know this text is upon the early stories of Jesus' life, and the location, there in Bethlehem. Fascinatingly enough, Rachel is buried in Bethlehem, not in the family tomb, as Leah will be. Something that was dynamic in this particular relationship was the sort of chief, pol- chief uh, position that Rachel held. With the passing of Rachel, the baton sort of gets passed to another matriarch in the family, particularly Leah. And Beliah is the servant to Rachel. And who would then become the rightful heir of the the next matriarch of the family. And this is why we read in chapter 22, or, or verse 22 of chapter 35, that Reuben sleeps with his mom, essentially, Beliah to ensure his mother, Leah's rightful place in the family. In other words, what we see is an attempt by Reuben to take the family throne, if you will. He is the firstborn, after all, as it's mentioned in verse 23. You'll see Moses emphatically making clear that Reuben is Jacob's firstborn. If we wouldn't have already known that, the reader knows that, we know that. He's emphasizing here that the firstborn is going to be passed over. He's preparing us for what's about to come in the story of Joseph and of Judah. For the reader and for us, what we need to think about is what God is going to do through this messed up family and disordered relationships. a Sort of a lingering effect of Jacob's past sin. And it's a reminder to us that our sin often has a lingering effect in our life. That though God forgives our sins, that doesn't mean that there are still not consequences to our sins. And we see that even here. A lingering effect of Jacob's sinfulness. Even upon his own family. Was well, the baton is passed, as we see Jacob settling there and replacing his father, Isaac it leads us to remember that God's promises are not going to fail because of the foolishness of Jacob's family. But that God has a purpose in all of this. And as I mentioned at the beginning, that through Judah, the fourthborn of Leah's son, not a beloved Rachel, Joseph, or Benjamin, would come the promised seed. As Jacob Reveals this in his blessings in chapter 49 of the book of Genesis that it will be through the tribe of Judah that the promised king would come. Now, I passed over it just a moment ago, but I want you to notice here as we prepare to sort of transition and sort of wrap things up in chapter 36 that when God confirmed the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 35 and verse 11, notice what he says to Jacob. He said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations. So so in other words, he says, not just one nation, but a company of nations. So um, Paul will use this later in Galatians chapter 3 to argue about the inclusivity of the nations through the gospel. But he goes on, he says this, and kings shall come from your own body. In other words, From your children will come kings. Kings will come from you. As we think about this king that is going to come. Moses sets up Israel. Sets up the, the first readers if you will. By demonstrating that Esau had kings before Israel. In other words. He's trying to show them that God is faithful to not only the nation of Israel, but to the nations plural. You know, often when we read our Bibles, I I fear that we we narrowly think God's only, you know, he only cares about the Jewish people. God only cares about the Hebrew people. That's not true at all. God's purpose was to work through one particular people so as to bless all people through Jesus Christ, a descendant of Jacobs, the true king. and so God made promises to Abraham and he kept those promises through Jacob. His covenant people would establish the kingdom his kingdom on earth but as we'll see as you'll, See in the reading of your Bible that they will fail to honor God and make him king. And therefore, God would need to send someone else to establish a new kingdom people. God's presence with his people through the work and person of Jesus Christ, his son. So that a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation... I want you to see then that promise in chapter 36. So just a few things I want to note here. And, and I want to be clear that when you read these gene, genealogies in chapter 36, uh, you might be like, well, what is the point of all this? Here's what I mean. God's chosen Israel. God has said, I'm going to work through Jacob's sons. Why all this business about Esau's sons? Who You know, God says, I chose you. No, I didn't choose him. Paul says it this way. uh, Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. Well, it doesn't seem that God hates the way we do. If you read chapter 36. This seems like, I mean, if God hated Esau... He surely blessed him with a lot of kids. In fact, he blessed him so much that they had kings. They had sort of a, a governmental structure. They were a nation even before the nation of Israel. We're told in chapter 36 some about Esau's family. won't spend time on all the details here, but... But there's a a repetition, and I want to point the repetition out because the repetition is the point. Look there in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. That is, Edom. Throughout this chapter, Moses continually repeats that theme. So again, another example would be verse 8. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So so for the slow reader in the room that didn't get that the first time, Moses says, here, here it is again. Uh, Esau is Edom. Well, he, he has a few others. Another one, verse 19, these are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. Or again in verse 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. What's the point? Well, as you and I read this, we're like, okay, I've never been to Edom. I don't know where this place is. Well, the Israelites would have known it quite well. You see, as the Israelites left Egypt and were on their way to the Promised Land, there was a, there was a, a kingdom, a territory, a shortcut, if you will, a, a, an alleyway, a bypass, something that would have got them there really quickly. It was the country of Edom. You see, the kingdom of Edom set just to the southern border, Of what is the promised land. So that when they came out of Egypt. They could have made a straight shot. Right to the promised land. Been there literally overnight. But when they made their way to the border of Edom. What does Edom do? But they say get lost. Jacob. You stink. Get out of here. And what Moses is doing here. Is teaching the nation of Israel. Because they were instructed. Don't mess with Edom. And fascinatingly enough, in all of the time period that God's people, uh, through all of the kings, in particular King David, he dealt with the Edomites regularly. They were a constant pest and nuisance to the nation of Israel. A fulfillment, and here's the point I want you to hear, the fulfillment of what God said to their mother. What Moses is doing here is he's reminding us that God's people... Uh, These two particular sons would constantly be at war with one another. This is what God said to their mother. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Well, it didn't feel like the older was serving the younger when they needed to get through town and were refused it didn't feel like the older edom was serving the younger israel when they were constantly harassing king david or it didn't feel like that when the one guy who spoke into king saul's life the most was doeg the edomite it didn't feel like that when obadiah preached down hellfire and brimstone upon the people of edom wrote his entire prophecy about how God would one day and it didn't feel like that whenever King Herod sought to slaughter all the children in Bethlehem because the king had been born. What's the point? That regardless of what you see going on in the nations around you nation of Israel God is still with you. Though they might have had kings first, the one true king will come from you. The king who will reign over the cosmos. And what we see here is a sort of a glimpse of what God will do through all the nations in blessing them through the one true and living king, Jesus Christ. So much so, as I've alluded to in Revelation chapter 7, as John looks to the future, so you want to talk about fast-forwarding, right? We just fast-forwarded to the, to the end, from the beginning to the end. In Revelation chapter 7, John gets this vision of the future. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Every nation, even the nation of Edom. So often in our lives, we can discount and think that God is only at work in one particular people, one particular denomination, one particular church, or one particular Christian. But the truth is, is that God works through his son, Jesus Christ, to bring about the gathering of every ethnic group in this world. As Christians, as a congregation, we want to strive to reflecting this heavenly picture in our gatherings on the Lord's Day. If the Lord will allow us in in a community that is different and diverse, our gathering should reflect that. Our leadership should reflect that. We should be thinking, having our hearts for the nations, not so much for our own nation. I want to live in a land that's free. My heart, my citizenship, first and foremost, is in heaven. That should inform the way I think, the way I vote, the way I love my neighbor, the way I serve in my community. God has a global plan to unite people From every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this God is a promise-keeping God. And so this morning, as we think about the thousands of people groups in our world who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, who do not have access to any gathering of God's people, we should not think that God's promises have failed. But continuing faithfully to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth for his glory. Because he promised and he keeps his word. Perhaps this morning you're struggling with God's promises. Perhaps you think, man, I just don't know. It doesn't feel like it. Brothers and sisters, what you need to do with your feelings is inform them with the truth. Do not be deceived by your feelings, but allow the truth that God is a promise-keeping God. He keeps His Word. Spend time in the Word, meditating on God's promises, like the one in Psalm 91. I will not let pestilence... That promise was fulfilled in Christ. For he commanded the angels concerning him. Our God keeps his word. You can trust him. You you can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your family. You can trust him with your soul. Can God be trusted? Yes. Because he is El Shaddai. The Lord God Almighty. As Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let's pray. Father, it is for your glory alone that you fulfill your promises. You did not have to make a single promise, but it is your character to be a God who keeps his word. Lord, help us teach us to depend upon you Let us set our minds in your eternal plan to call and to gather a people from the nations. It's for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.